Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the third hour of our program. On the line with us is the activist, co-founder of Code Pink and Global Exchange, author of Kingdom of the Unjust, behind the U.S.-Saudi connection, Medea Benjamin, codepink.org, globalexchange.org. You can tweet her at Medea Benjamin. Medea, welcome back to the program. I read this piece that you and Nicholas Davies wrote. I saw it on Mint Press News. Black Lives Matter everywhere. It's time to defund the U.S. military. Talk with us for a moment about the intersection of racism, not just American racism, but a racism around the world and militarism. Yes, thanks so much for having me on, Tom. Great to be back on the show. If you look at the history of U.S. wars since the time of Vietnam till today, the U.S. wars are against people of color. And So many people in the military get indoctrinated in uh, racist uh, ideas as part of getting people ready to go over and kill people they know nothing about and really have no beef with. And so when you see the U.S. killing people of color in places like Afghanistan or in Iraq, or you see U.S. weapons being used against people of color, in Yemen or in Palestine, or let's take it to the economic warfare that's been going on in places like Venezuela or Iran, also non-white people. The U.S. is at war with people of color around the world, and that is reflected right here at home. So the piece that we wrote shows how the inequalities at home are reflected in the inequalities overseas, how the attacks are reflected overseas, and how this is part of a racist system that is not just domestic, but is global, where the resources of the world are held in the hands of a very small white elite, and the U.S. police and military are guarding that. So in the United States, uh, the, the, arguably the first war by Europeans against people of color was European settlers against Native Americans, which produced the largest genocide in the history of the world. We had the War of 1848, where Americans 
white European Americans fought to take parts of the American Southwest in California from Mexico. And Mexico at that point, most of the people that they were fighting against in the lands that they were stealing were indigenous people, indigenous to Central and, you know, Central America, but indigenous Americans, arguably Native Americans. I mean, this has always been part of the DNA of this country. But at the same time that America was being colonized in the 1600s, white European colonization was stretching out across the world. How did this white supremacy come out of Europe and basically over a 400-year period conquer the world and keep the world largely suppressed based on race? And then, of course, you've got kind of subsets of that. I mean, Japan thought they were going to do this with China in the 19, late 1930s, early 1940s. And they were openly portraying it as a racial war, although the Japanese were identifying themselves as racially different than the Chinese. I think you could argue that using race as a presupposition for war, or as a justification for war, is a very, very ancient thing. What do we do about this, I guess, is my question. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you brought it back to the founding of this country. What do we do about it? I think we build movements. And the purpose of the piece we wrote is for people to be reflecting on the call for Black Lives Matter in this larger context, to say that what is happening at home is happening overseas, that instead of saying, oh, let's take the military off our street and put it back where it belongs, fighting people overseas. Uh, No, that's not what we want. Uh, We want to use this time to really say, why are we putting so much money into the military? Why are these weapons from the Pentagon ending up on our streets with the tanks and the grenades and the tear gas and the rubber bullets? Isn't it really part of a much larger movement we need that ends the militarization both at home and abroad? And I love the conversation that's happening around defund the police and getting people to really think about uh, what that could look like. And I think that same conversation needs to happen about our military. Could a non-militarized international force really look like that takes some of the conflicts that are raging and deals with them in a different kind of way, just like we're envisioning at home. And there are so many of these, well, not not the UN peacekeeping forces, because they are mostly armed and have been very controversial. But there are NGOs that have been created that send people into conflict zones, non-armed, accompanying people whose lives are in danger, and doing amazing work that we could really put lots of money into because now they're funded with very small, you know, $10 million budgets and see ways to deal with conflicts, not in the militarized way we're doing it now. Amen. I've been affiliated with those. I was associated with a group based out of Germany back in 1980, and I went into Uganda during the war with Idi Amin. Wow, I didn't know that, Tom. That's amazing. Yeah. The U.K., I think that you could say the U.K., you know, this enforcement of empire via race and caste was something that was really high on the U.K.'s list starting in the 1500s as the United Kingdom was becoming a, a world force as they eclipsed the Dutch trading companies. After World War II, or, or actually after World War I, the empire of the United Kingdom, basically the U.K. just said, okay, that's it, we're not in the empire business anymore. And, you know, let their colonies go, essentially, and stopped enforcing this world order. And, I mean, they've been part of the new American world order, as it were. 
Do you see a way that the United States could set aside our aspirations to empire or our, our actual our ownership of empire the way that the United Kingdom did? I think it's inevitable. Empires come and go, and we're seeing Trump accelerate things in really making you the U.S. Uh, not be seen as a leader in the global movement er- anymore. I mean, today, just sanctioning the International Criminal Court. I was on a call yesterday with world leaders who were anti-U.S. leadership and are trying to find ways to really get themselves off of the dollar, to build new alliances. They look to China more than they look to the United States for support. So the U.S. empire is on its way down. The question yeah. is when and how will it happen? Well, and also, does it get replaced by a neo-fascist Chinese empire? Right, right. That yes, could be as problematic. I mean, you know, they're enforcing, you know, racism against the Uyghurs right now. Yes, but when you look at their relationships with the rest of the world, there is a lot more sympathy to the support from the Chinese than the U.S. exploitation. Yeah. A very interesting, uh, large conversation. Medea Benjamin, CodePink.org. Medea, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. And just a reminder, Black Lives Matter everywhere. It's time to defund the U.S. military is the title of Medea's piece. Tom Hartman here with you. Pat in Bellevue. Hey, Pat, what's up? You just said something about Britain giving up its possessions like India willingly, but it wasn't the willingly. It was a condition of the U.S. joining the World War II in 41 or 42 or whatever it was. That was one of the conditions. That's how India had to be parted with. In, um, really? I'm sure that's the truth, and that's what I was told anyway. But that was why it was the deadline for uh, 1948 was for Britain to leave India. Hmm. What about the deconstruction of the Ottoman Empire? I mean, you know, all those countries' uh, boundaries were redrawn immediately after World War II, and I thought that a number of the countries that you know where the boundaries were redrawn or they were, uh, you know, granted independence were former British colonies. Am I wrong in that? I know Uganda because I've been there a number of times. They got independence in 1956. I'm pretty sure, if I'm remembering correctly. So it was well, kind of a that, gradual that, process. I don't know. I don't know about that. All I'm talking about is the 1948 have Britain having to to give up India, put it back right. to Indian membership, right. and and then I don't know okay. about the African companies. I, I don't know that that was forced or they themselves made it sure that they became independent. But of course, right. no. I, I've just written a book about it. Um, it's. Uh, post-war London was filled with people. First of all, it was the um, the Pakis, and then uh, and then the Rhodesias, and then the rest of them came in. And um, the hardest part was reabsorbing the the British Army families because they lived in India for a, you know, a century at least. And mm-hmm. these people came back. They were usually in their um, 60s and 70s, they had no idea how to look after themselves. My sister-in-law took in a a couple of relatives who were in their 70s. They had never washed their clothes, they had never cooked, they had never done anything. And she took them in until they lived with her until she died. And they were in terrible shape because they had no idea how to uh, exist. Remarkable. What's the title of your book, Pat? 
It's not on that exactly. I'm calling it Memories of an Octogenarian because oh, I'm 86. And, um, oh, but it's a story written. It, it starts in, well, I was born in 33, so I can remember being 36, uh, in 36 because I can remember very clearly the fire at the Crystal Palace. I mean, my father picked mm. my, me, a three-year-old, up at 10 o'clock at night and said, look at the glow in the sky, you'll, you'll remember this for the rest of your life. And he was quite right. I, I lived through um, London, Wembley, World War II, post-war London, and left there in uh, 56 and became... Pat, a, I have um, to move along, but thank you for sharing this all with us. It's an absolutely fascinating story, and thanks for correcting me on British history. I need to read a good history of uh, the end of British colonialism. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Hey, a new book of mine just came out. I, it's called Living with ADHD, and it's a book about how the tools of NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. In fact, I was having a rather lengthy correspondence with a friend in email yesterday about using NLP on the air when you call into a talk show, for example. I wrote this book as originally as a book about NLP, uh, which is how to be a, an effective communicator and how to have effective relationships and all those kinds of things, how to be more successful in your life in general as a consequence of, of the way that you communicate, of the technology you use. Put it in the context of people who are hunters, not farmers. And uh, Richard Bandler, the guy who co-founded NLP along with John Grinder, the, these two guys invented this whole neuro-linguistic programming thing back in the 60s. Uh, Richard Bandler wrote the foreword to this book. And I just got a box of copies from the publisher. So I'm assuming that they're arriving now at, you know, uh, Powell's and Amazon and other book places. I suppose this qualifies as a plug for my own book, but, you know, which may sound kind of crass, I suppose. I'll confess to that. But I think it's really useful. I mean, that's why I wrote this book. This is not just some hack book. There is some really, really good stuff in here. If you have anybody in your life who uh, has ADHD or even is close to being on that spectrum, as it were. The subtitle is Simple Exercises to Change Your Daily Life, and it's not physical exercises. I think you'll find it fascinating. Living with ADHD by Tom Harbin. Just out, and probably not in bookstores yet. Anyhow, just a tip. End of that rant. So, meanwhile, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. Louise and I were talking about this last night, actually. It's, it's fascinating. Andrew Mellon who was one of the richest men in America, was Herbert Hoover's Treasury Secretary. And in 1929, when the market crashed in October of 1929, Andrew Mellon said to Herbert Hoover, liquidate everything was the famous phrase attributed to him. Liquidate labor, liquidate business, liquid, liquidate everything. And what will come out of that, and I'm paraphrasing now, the liquidate everything is a verbatim quote, but essentially what he said is, if you let everything collapse, half of the businesses in America go out of business, go bankrupt. If you let half the families in America go bankrupt and lose their homes, what will happen is the strong will survive. This is a Darwinian process. And some good will come out of this. Don't worry, just do it. And that's what Herbert Hoover did for the next two years. Arguably next, well, two and a half years. So all of 1930, all of 1931, all of 32 and then the first three months of 1933. In fact, the Constitution says that the president gets sworn in in March, and so the nation had to wait until March of 33 for FDR to get inaugurated or to get sworn into office so he could do something about this. And Americans were so frustrated by that having to wait that we actually amended the Constitution to move the inauguration date to January 20th so that that wouldn't have to happen again. But the, the, where I was going with this and, and what I was describing to Louise last night is that Andrew Mellon and his company, his, he was a bankster, 
Andrew Mellon and his companies then started buying up all these distressed businesses. And he became hugely richer over the 40s and 50s, he and his family and his companies, as a consequence of the advice that he gave the President of the United States. So now you've got Steve Mnuchin, and Congress gave him a half a trillion dollars, a $511 billion slush fund to pass out to whoever he wants. And I would bet almost anything that the Trump Organization is getting a pile of this, that Steve Mnuchin is getting a pile of this, that Trump donors are getting a pile of this, that people associated with the Trump crime family are getting a pile of this. That I mean, we're talking a half a friggin' trillion dollars. This isn't a few million dollars. It isn't a few hundred million dollars. It isn't a few thousand million dollars. It's $511,000 million. $511 billion dollars. This program, by the way, which was expanded to a half a trillion dollars, was first put into place in 1991. But, you know, typically it's just got a little bit of funding where the government can, Treasury Department can help people out. The total is actually $660 billion. So Steve Mnuchin comes out and says, we're not going to tell you who we're going to give the money to and who we gave the money to. Sorry, guys, you don't get to know, ever. We're going to bury it six feet deep. Meanwhile... A new book by uh, Washington Post reporter Mary Jordan will be soon hitting the stands. It's called The Art of Her Deal, The Untold Story of Melania Trump. And in this book, Mary Jordan is laying out what has become a bombshell, which is that the reason that Melania spent six months in New York City refusing to come to Washington, D.C. after Trump got inaugurated was because she was blackmailing him, essentially. She was, you know, PO'd about everything that had come out about Karen McDougal and about Stormy Daniels, but mostly she was using the fact that he wanted her to move to D.C. to leverage him to renegotiate the prenup to get more money out of Donald Trump or more security or whatever. We don't know the details of this. But, you know, my take on this, Donald Trump is a grifter. He's been a grifter his whole life. His dad was a grifter, a racist grifter at that, arrested at a Klan rally, you know, refusing to rent houses to African-Americans. That was Donald's first job, marking the letter C for colored on the application, rental applications of black people, so that his dad could say no to them. I mean, they were sued by the federal government for this, essentially settled out of court. You know, like I said, his dad was arrested at a Klan rally. So you got Trump as a grifter. Of course, Melania Trump, you know, she's, she's a grifter too. And then all three of their kids are, you know, we don't know about Barron, but they're not their kids, I suppose. But, you know, his three oldest children are all grifters. And you got, you know, I mean, look at just Google sometime Trump Soho and Melania Trump and Eric Trump. And, you know, the charges, the allegations that were made, they were lying to people and ripping people off. So, you know, we've got a grifter family here in the White House. Frankly, I'm not surprised that Melania used this as an opportunity to squeeze more money out of Donald Trump. In my opinion, that's why she married him in the first place. Why else would anybody marry him? On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolf, the professor of economics and economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info. His other website, rdwolf2fs.com, the author of numerous books, including his latest, Understanding Socialism. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf, as in Professor Wolf. Professor Wolf, welcome back. I'm, I'm wondering if you could give us a, 
bit of a deep dive into how police and prisons built this economy. Let me just give you two real quick data points. Number one, I think most Americans are aware that most of Washington, D.C., many of the physical institutions of America were literally built with slave labor. We see that. And then also something I think most Americans are unaware of, at least most white Americans, is that the 13th Amendment did not literally end slavery. It ended slavery under all circumstances except for those persons convicted of a crime. How does that bring us to today, and how did that get us where we are, sir? Well, you know, prisons have been a part of uh, the lives of societies whose internal cohesion as communities fell apart at some point. And so the only way they could hold themselves together was by taking a subsection of their own, calling them a police department, giving them a monopoly or nearly a monopoly of force to basically impose on those who felt shortchanged in the community the dominant perspective of those who were in charge. To say the same thing in simple English, if you create horrible divisions in your society, then the temptation to manage them by forcing them upon others rather than reaching a compromise becomes very, very tempting. That's why the deepening of divisions in the United States today shows up quickly in the form of antagonism towards the police, as we've seen in the last few weeks. If I could say something about the 13th Amendment as you brought it up, Michelle Alexander deserves the credit. She's a a professor here in the United States right now for having pointed out that the United States not only has more people uh, out of a percentage of its population in jail than almost any other country and certainly any other developed country, but that the overwhelming majority of the people in jail are either black or brown. What you could then say, if you remember the 13th Amendment, is that the slavery that was abolished in the American South on the plantation wasn't so much abolished as it was relocated out of the South in particular into Americans' prisons all across the country that have become the new slaveholder because they are allowed, and in fact they do this, they are allowed to use the inmate in there for whatever reason got him or her in there, and it's overwhelmingly male as well, as slaves. We now have prisoners being uh, basically leased out to private employers. Some private employers have moved their facilities into the prisons with the approval. The prisoners are paid unbelievably low amounts of money. Some Americans even noticed that in those wildfires that really uh, hurt California over the last two or three years, they used convict labor to help put out those fires. Um, And then afterwards threw them right back into jail, uh, which struck me always as a remarkable uh, acknowledgement of what they had just done. But it's a terrible feature of our society. If you're seriously uh, concerned about racism, as we at least say we are, uh, you ought to be first and foremost worried, uh, A, about the divisions between white and black. I mean here mostly the economic ones. And then asking the police to keep the lid on this inequality 
puts the police in an impossible position. I don't mean to excuse them for a minute, but you are asking them to impose a level of inequality that anyone would resist, um, just as the black community has. Uh, but you're also, you also have to face the reality that our prisons are literally schools for slavery. We are legally allowed by the 13th Amendment to treat inmates, the overwhelming majority of whom are black and brown, to treat them as slaves, which we do. We are training them to accept slavery, to think in terms of slavery, to be bitter about their own enslavement. And then we wonder when they come out of jail that they may not be the best people in the community, uh, given the experience they've been put through, that that, that is crazy. It is not recuperative on a person who has problems uh, in normal society to make them a slave for a period of years. The idea that that's going to rehabilitate them is, is where the problem lies. Right, and we don't see this kind of imprisonment or policing, for that matter, in any other developed country. It's, this is not how it that's works right. in Canada. It's no not one how it works has anywhere to, in Europe. That's right. No one has these statistics. I mean, my European friends are always aghast at the kinds of prison sentences imposed on Americans. They love to point out, often with a kind of sardonic humor, that we keep saying we have to have a tough police force. We have to give our police military capability. And yet we have more crime uh, than any of them do. Uh, a little statistic. In 2019, the American police killed 1,004 people. This is according to the Washington Post. The police in England and Wales over the same period of time killed four people. 1,004 versus four. Uh, Japan killed eight. Uh, Denmark killed none last year. Australia killed 11. I mean, we are off the chart in, in, in what we do as a society, but we seem to be caught in a vicious cycle where we spend more and more on the police, we have more and more police, they are more and more active in causing at least half the problem that we have with our quote-unquote criminal uh, society, and yet we use the criminal to justify the police, the police to justify, in a sense, uh, the criminality. We now face this crisis in which cities and states across the United States are being pinched. They have no tax revenues coming in because everybody's unemployed. And what are they going to do? They're going to cut schools. They're going to cut social services. But they're going to increase, as many of them have promised, their police departments. This is an attempt to control a society dividing into rich and poor by throwing police at them. That has never worked. And what I mean is it has never solved the underlying problem. What it does do is make a society very bitter, very suspicious, very quick on the trigger, all which are ways. And I don't think any of us wants to live in that kind of society. Yeah, and I think it brings about things like the Boston Massacre. I'm, I'm wondering what is the historic relationship between economic crises and political change? Was there a, an economic piece to the Russian Revolution, to the French Revolution, rise of Hitler, the Civil War, World War One and Two? You know, I know the American Revolution was preceded in 1770 by a major economic crash that caused the British Parliament to give a huge tax break to the British East India Company. That was the, uh, the, the Tax Act of 1773 that provoked the Boston Tea Party. But, you know, what about the rest of these? And how predictable is that association? And how, how often do we ignore it when we look at history? Well, I think the problem is that while it is true that economic crises 
typically are followed by political upheaval. It's not always the case. Maybe the way to put it is political upheaval is frequently previewed, if you like, by an economic crash. But if the uh, economic crash happens at a time that isn't contextually ready for it, then it can rise and fall. I mean, the way to say it is, for example, the great crash of, of 1929, uh, and what we're living through now is the closest we have to that. The great crash of 1929, global in its scope, uh, completely transformed, for example, Germany from a relatively progressive liberal state to modern Nazism. Uh, so you couldn't have a more dramatic. And likewise, the same crash in the same period of time produced a dramatic shift to the left, the opposite direction, here in the United States, when the Republicans gave way to a middle-of-the-road Democrat, Roosevelt, and he, in turn, responded to pressure from below and became probably the most progressive uh, president in American history. So you, you, you can see that the crisis has different consequences depending on the environment, the context, and the economic crisis can or cannot provoke serious political adjustments. It is, however, true, and there's lots of examples, that it is hard to imagine a very severe economic downturn having no political consequence. That really, that would be a hard one to find. Um, we really are easier historically in seeing that anything approaching the kind of uh, severity we're now going through, uh, passing without political turmoil, that's extremely unlikely. So if what you're wondering, Tom, is are we in for a political uh, rough ride? I think the answer is virtually certain. It seems to me, uh, Professor Wolf, that the Republican Party and the conservatives, or perhaps more correctly, the billionaires who are behind the conservative movement, or at least so-called conservative movement, much like in the 1930s, the billionaires who were behind Hitler. I just last year right. finished reading uh, Fritz Tyson's book, I Funded Hitler, I Paid Hitler was the title of the book. Right. And it was just an amazing story about how over about a year and a half long period, he was financing the rise of Hitler, thinking that Hitler was going to be the best thing that ever happened to German industry. I mean, he was a steel baron, right? And it wasn't until the mid-30s, I think 36, 37 thereabouts, that Tyson realized really deep down in his guts what a horrible thing he had done and, and, and had to basically flee. It seems to me, you know, I'd love to get your take on this, and, and please correct me if you think I'm wrong or argue with me, uh, that our generation of Fritz Tysons, you know, the, 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 the right-wing billionaires, the Mercers and the Kochs and the Adelsons and whatnot, who funded the rise of Donald Trump and the modern Republican Party have not read that book, have not got that memo, but they have learned from that lesson of what happened in the United States in 1932 versus what happened in Germany in 1932. Because in 32, as Hoover and the whole Republican machine, and it was substantial, as you know, was right. going down in flames. You know, uh, it wasn't just Hoover who was discredited. So was Coolidge and Harding, although Coolidge was you know, gone by then. They're not letting the Republicans be discredited outside of just Donald Trump. In fact, they're trying to portray Donald Trump as sort of an, an anomaly. And they're building this conservative infrastructure, much like Tyson did 
1932 in Germany to pave the way for a more, quote, business-friendly future, which I interpret as fascism. And they're not going to make the mistake that the conservatives of the 1920s did here in the United States. They're trying to play out the game plan of the conservatives in Germany in the, in the early 1930s. Have I gone way too paranoid and off the edge here? No, no, no. I, I think that your, your rendering of the history is really quite correct. I think there is a key difference. In Germany, unlike here in the United States, the business community, Thyssen, Krupp, all the other huge backers, they initially didn't want uh, Hitler. They initially wanted the conservatives uh, to replace the, the left of center socialists, uh, but the problem was history didn't wait for them. The socialists and then the Communist Party, which rose very fast in the 1920s, uh, they zoomed into enormous power in the aftermath of the Great Crash. That's one of the lessons we ought to learn. From being strong, they became very strong uh, as millions of unemployed people had enough of capitalism and turned towards socialism, much as young people are polling in the United States today. So suddenly, the ruling groups, the big industrialists in Germany, were frightened. They were frightened that not only would they not get their conservative uh, the way they hoped for, but they would be swamped by a working class uh, split roughly between socialist and communist parties, and together wiping them out in terms of the capitalist dominance. In that panic, and this is all taking place in 1931 and 32, uh, there's an election in which over half the people in Germany vote for either the socialist or communist parties so that they are clearly uh, on the rise. And in that moment, they turn to Hitler. They had made fun of him before, but he was the only one who had some sort of mass base that the conservative business community could turn to. Nobody else was available, so they went with him, and he quickly kind of turned the tables on them, leading people like Thyssen eventually uh, to break away. We don't have that here. We don't have a strong left. Ironically, it is the right wing in America since the Great Depression, since the New Deal, that has done so much to wipe out the left. And here is the irony of the history. It was the left in the 1930s that got us Social Security, unemployment compensation, the first minimum wage, federal jobs program for millions. And that created the so-called middle class, the, the, uh, a class that got higher wages than they could have gotten any other way with a strong union movement. Slavery, arguably, was you know a clear and vivid expression of early capitalism in America. Speak of the association between slavery and capitalism, on the assumption that slavery continues in the United States to this day, in our prisons, and I would argue more largely, more broadly, in any of our uh, industrial situations. Very simply. And by the way, Raymond Williams, who's getting a proper nod, wrote years ago about the link between capitalism and slavery. Anyone interested, it remains the greatest book on the subject. Early American slavery produced cotton. Cotton was the key ingredient in the English Industrial Revolution that brought capitalism into being. 
Britain could never have produced cat, uh, cotton cloth uh, because of growing cotton in England. It, that's not possible. It was slaves in America that produced the cotton and made it cheap enough to fuel and fund the rise of capitalism. And, and so it was crucial there. And today it's crucial again because prisoners are low paid, very, very low paid. And that allows the products of prison activity to compete unfairly in the market, giving a kind of another boost to capitalism on the back of people who've suffered a long time and are now paid pennies per hour way below the minimum wage we give everybody else. Bingo. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Professor Richard Wolf, democracywork.info, rdwolf.com, Prof Wolf on Twitter. Professor Wolf, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. John in Manchester, Washington. Hey, John, what's up? I just had a brief comment. Uh, the IRS seems to be missing in action except for uh, stimulating Trump. I mailed in my 2019 tax forms in March, and I read a, a newspaper story yesterday because the IRS will not respond. Apparently, my return will not even package will not be opened until June 29th. Right. So all the mailed-in forms are sitting in a truck someplace. Yeah, the reason for this is Starve the Beast. This is the Starve the Beast strategy that Ronald Reagan laid out back in the day that has been uh, actively pursued. During the George W. Bush administration, they laid off a good chunk of the IRS staff. I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. I literally was writing a chapter for my next book on oligarchy about this topic yesterday, citing all these uh, statistics from uh, federal agencies that have been slashed. But uh, when Trump came into power, came into office, the IRS was already operating at something like 10,000 people short out of, as I recall, 68,000 total. And what did they do? How did they respond to that? They offered early retirement to another, as I recall, 15,000 IRS agents. So the IRS is now down to somewhere in the neighborhood of 40, 45,000 employees. Again, I'm doing this from memory, but I'm, it's pretty close. And the consequence of that is that, you know, is exactly what you're describing, John. They've done the same thing with Medicare and Social Security over the last 10 years, Republicans. Obama restored some of these numbers with both the IRS and Social Security Administration. Trump is slashing them again, and they're doing it so that people will become unhappy with the service they're getting from the IRS, unhappy with the service that they're getting from Medicare and Social Security, so that, you know, the next step is for the Republicans to come along and say, hey, you know, the IRS has taken forever to respond to you. They're not doing a good job. Well, let's turn all this over to H&R Block. You know, let's, let's privatize collection of taxes in the United States, which, you know, some states have actually done in part already. And then secondly, you know, with regard to health care services uh, or health insurance services, they're going to say, oh, you know, Medicare is taking, you know, six months to process your application. Social Security is now taking two years to process disability applications because of cuts that started with the Reagan administration, but really went on steroids with the Bush administration and then got tripled down on by Trump. You know, you're hearing calls from people to reform Social Security. Well, really what you need to do is hire enough employees that it can properly function. But, you know, the Republicans have been going in the exact opposite direction, and it's not an accident. This is, this is a well-thought-out strategy. It was articulated back in the 1980s. In fact, uh, you know, arguably, uh, you know, even before that, in the 19, late 1970s. So that's what's going on, John. You know, okay. that's why your return hasn't, you know, go ahead. 
Well, I'll keep my patients uh, grooming here, so thank you. Yeah, there you go. Well, and the other part of it, John, is that the IRS is no longer, for all practical purposes, auditing rich people because it takes too long and it takes too many people. So now all of the audits that they're doing are on average middle-class taxpayers and small businesses. And, uh, you know, big businesses, giant corporations, pay organizations like the Trump Organization that has hundreds of individual corporations so that they can play shell games and move money and debt back and forth. They're not getting audited anymore. Or if they are, it's very perfunctory because the IRS just doesn't have the resources. I mean, this is a twofer for the oligarch class. Nikki in Joplin, Missouri. Hey, Nikki, what's up? I'm really discouraged and I'm embarrassed sometimes to live in the United States anymore. It just seems like Trump, even when he does something wrong, he gets off, you know. It's just, it's depressing. And I was wondering, what do you really think or your opinion about what our allies think of us right now? Oh, it's it's pathetic. We are the laughingstock of, of the developed world. And the developing world is looking at us with fear because they're saying, whoa, you know, if, a, if the shiny city on the hill can be corrupted by its billionaires that easily, what's going to happen to us? Also, you've got countries around the world that are starting to determine who can come into their country based on whether or not they've got their coronavirus under control. And we're going to be the last country on earth that anybody lets. I mean, you know, Americans are going to be the pariahs over the next year or two or three. They're going to start turning on us because he has been so... You know, he won't work with our allies on anything. Oh, they already have. They already have. I mean, they're going ahead with, you know, trying to do something about climate change. They're, doing, they're going ahead with trying to reduce the, the poisons in their environment. Their, their countries in the world are moving ahead with trying to protect their people from coronavirus. Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, South Korea, China, they've all largely crushed this thing. And it's us in Brazil. We're the village idiots. It's, it's incredible. Nikki, thank you for the call. Spot on. I won't say I'm embarrassed to be an American. I'm embarrassed that we have Donald Trump as a president and that the Republican Party has the strength that it does. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Dana in New York City. Hey, Dana, thanks for watching Manhattan News Network. What's up? The challenge for the election is how do you get people to look past their own greed and and self-absorption? The level of moral vacancy that you see in people, the the people that voted for Trump, they voted for Trump because they want to be Trump. It's a a culture of diftanets. You know, they want to be rich, but they don't want to work for it. They don't want to pay taxes. They don't want to participate in modern society. And it's, I think there's a lot of desperation and magical thinking going on, Dana, now that 40 years of Reaganomics has stripped the middle class. Yeah, but I mean, this kind of amoral hucksterism, I mean, it, you know, it goes back to why this nation exists as an entity. Grab as much land as you can, maximize your profit from it, live like a king until you die, and then it's the next guy's problem. It's not caring about anyone other than themselves is the problem. And calling Trump supporters dumb isn't productive. Because, it, you know, you, Although you some of them you know, are. You have to but, figure uh, out how but, to but I, I agree. And this is something that Jack Forbes used to call wetico, this mental illness, consuming the lives of others, essentially cannibalism. Dana, thank you for the call. Bob in San Jose, California. Hey, Bob, thanks for listening to AM 910, uh, iHeartRadio there in San Francisco. What's up? Well, I have a modest proposal. Approximately 100 years ago, we had this rural electrification program to essentially bring electricity out to farms and, and other places of low population density where the cost of wiring was high, and it was essentially a federal program. And we've, we've had another program in the 50s that had to do with uh, uh, interstate highways. And that was a way of, uh, and funded by the Department of Defense, 
which greatly improved transportation across the country. The COVID-19 virus has proven, among other things, that we really need Internet to everyone. It has to be low cost or even free of cost, and it has to be uh, wide bandwidth and reliable because there are a whole lot of people in rural areas that can barely get effectively dial-up speeds today. And, and uh, we need something to make that happen. So, so this should be, uh, I would say, Department of Defense. Broadly speaking, Bob, I completely agree with you. And just a couple of data points. The Department of Defense did not fund the, uh, the Eisenhower Highway System. There's this story that kind of persists that Eisenhower sold that by saying that these highways could be used as landing for bombers and things during, you know, if there was a war. It's all just vanishing hitchhiker story stuff. Eisenhower wanted to have an internet, an interstate highway system that would increase commerce, that would provide a, a strong infrastructure base for a strong economy going forward. That's how he sold it. That's how it was funded. And secondly, uh, you're absolutely right about the Rural Electrification Administration, the REA, which came out of the uh, New Deal. Then in the 1950s, I believe it was, was the RTA. And uh, you probably should double check when actually the RTA went into into effect. My recollection is it was Eisenhower, but it might have been FDR or Truman. Um, And that was the Rural Telephony administration. And that brought telephone lines to rural areas. So there's, uh, which is a much closer precedent actually than the REA, which was electricity, because telephony was basically, you know, that generation's version of the internet. And that was paid for by the federal government also. In both cases, it was because private companies controlled the generation of electricity and transmission of it. And, you know, the telephone systems and those private companies were unwilling to invest in rural areas, and so the federal government did it for them. And if you look at Chattanooga, Tennessee right now, and, and this is really worth you know spending a little time with the uh, DuckDuckGo, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they're not the only one, they're the only one whose name I can, you know, is right at the top of my head, but as a city, as a municipality, created a municipal broadband system, everybody in town has access to it, it's very, very cheap, it's super high speed, super high quality, among the best in the, in the United States, world-class service. And I absolutely agree with you, Bob. This should be uh, a, a right. This is, you know, everybody in America should have access to uh, high-quality internet. I'm totally with you, Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Could you give me the best example, you know, in American history of uh, supply-side economics failing, you know, New Deal or Keynesian economics or demand-side economics performing better, you know, in American history? Yeah, in the in the 20th century. Between the 1940s and the 1980s, every decade, GDP grew more than 3%. The middle class grew, the wealth of the middle class grew faster than the wealth of the top 10% every single decade. And then starting in the 1980s, when Reagan flipped it upside down and went from demand-side economics to supply-side economics, I don't think we've had even one single decade where we had an average 3% GDP growth during that decade. And the wealth of the middle class has steadily declined. In fact, it's declined by more than $7 trillion just in the last 20 years. What would you say is the best uh, response to conservatives to conservatives who say, oh, we grew at that rate only because Europe and Japan were, were destroyed in World War II? 
Look at our exports. It was not an export-driven growth. Certainly there was a lot of pent-up demand from World War II, and that's actually a more defensible argument, was that for five, six years during the war, we were not, you know, we were making war material. And so there was all, you know, people wanted to buy washing machines and cars and things. And that would account for the little boomlet that happened in the late 40s, in the five years after the, after the end of the war. But it was not rebuilding Europe. In fact, we didn't rebuild Europe. If you go over to Europe, you're not going to find American-made appliances and American-made things. We loaned them money and we gave them money. But, you know, Germany and Japan, they rebuilt their own cement plants and their own steel plants and all that sort of thing. So, you know, we didn't do yeah, it uh, with those countries the way that we're trying to do it with Afghanistan and Iraq. In Afghanistan and Iraq, we're letting American companies go in and build Afghan and Iraqi infrastructure, and it's been a disaster. We get ripped off, the infrastructure sucks, and a bunch of cronies of Bush and, and the GOP get rich. That's not how we did it after World War II. That was not the Marshall Plan. And I would say after the 70s, even, you know, this is after a while, after World War II, that decade also saw a GDP growth rate of 3%. So I think those are all good points. Thank good. you, Tom. Okay, you're welcome, Dennis. Thanks for the call. Dennis in Shorewood, Illinois. Hey, Dennis, what's up? They were making a push, I thought, to get rid of that cap on salt. You know, yeah. I mean, that was just a way to punish the blue states. And I live in, a, in Illinois, which is a high-tax state. And so I was wondering if, in your talks with uh, the Progressive Caucus or anybody else, if you've heard if that's still going to be a priority repeal of that provision that caps the deductibility of state and local taxes at $10,000 a year, the repeal of that is part of this $3 trillion HEROES bill that the Democrats just passed in the House of Representatives that oh, Mitch McConnell I didn't know that. is refusing to take up in the Senate. Yes, that is part of it. So that right. would solve that problem. That bill does a lot of really, really good stuff. I mean, it doesn't go as far as a lot of progressives would like. It's only got a single $1,200 payment rather than 2000 a month, you know, for that sort of thing. You know, it was written on the theory that this might be something that we could actually get through the Senate. And I think we need to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank so, you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Dennis, thanks for the call. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about or what Dennis and I are talking about, when Trump did his giant tax cut back two and a half years ago to punish blue states, which are generally the high tax states, red states, you know, Texas and, and Florida, for example, don't even have an income tax. So to punish the high tax states right now, if you spend $20,000 in state taxes, you can deduct that from your income on which you calculate your federal taxes. Under this new rule that Trump added to his tax cut, you can only do that deduction up to $10,000. And so it basically sticks it to the high tax states and it hurts the citizens of those states. And Congress is trying to undo it. Steve in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Steve, what's up? Uh, you know, I wanted to talk about debt and Putin and all this uh, money and Trump here. And, you know, Trump had this big debt, apparently, you know, that he borrowed some money from the, from the oligarchs or somebody over there in Russia. Now, if, if we had this 510, 11 billion that uh, there's no accounting for and no oversight and nobody knows where it could possibly be going, um, is, is it possible in your mind that uh, Trump might have got his, his loans paid back and maybe also gave a nice little bonus to Vladimir? 
Anything's possible, Steve. My understanding, by the way, of how that all worked was that there were two cash flows coming from, and it wasn't just Russia. There, there were other you know, republics around there. It was the, these various oligarchs who were basically trying to tech, take money out of countries that were, shall we say, poorly managed, uh, Russia probably being the you know, first among equals there. And that uh, when Trump was borrowing money from Deutsche Bank, when he started becoming a bad credit risk, they started saying, well, somebody's got to back these loans. And, and the people backing the loans were apparently these Russian oligarchs. And that's why he's fighting to keep this stuff hidden, or these oligarchs, some of them Russian, some of them perhaps from, from Ukraine, some of them from some of the Stan countries, some of them perhaps even from, from the Middle East. Trump defaulted on one loan, a couple hundred million dollars to Deutsche Bank, and they went after him and he sued them and they backed away and they gave him more money. So he ended up with like a billion dollars, you know, in debt to Deutsche Bank that was being backed up by these oligarchs. And then so that was one flow of cash. The other flow of cash was all these oligarchs buying Trump properties, not just in the United States, but all over the world because he's selling condos and buying these properties, in many cases at highly inflated prices, simply as ways to launder money. Trump was, uh, I believe, one of only two or three major real estate developers in in the New York region uh, over the last 20 or 30 years who was willing to be paid in cash. Everybody knows, you know, when somebody comes with $20 million in cash, uh, that was not uh, good money. So, you know, you've got a mobbed up president. Wouldn't surprise me in the least. So we'll find out, hopefully one day, probably long after Trump is gone. George in Palm Desert, California. Hey, George, what's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, I know you're, uh, there's a lot going on right now, but in my humble opinion, I think we're going to end up with a better country. Uh, but one thing I wanted to, uh, t- and I'm sure you'll agree with me, and is a good way to bring in the Trump supporters, not that I know many of them, I really don't allow them in my life, but Trump got his start basically by being anti-immigrant. So, as you have often stated, we don't have an illegal immigration problem in this country. We have an illegal employer problem. I believe that if the Democrat nominee or nominees for any office would kind of put that in their platform to have e-verification, we don't, that that would be a way to bring in one heck of a lot of these Trump people. I've been saying for years and years, we don't have an illegal immigration problem in this country. We have an illegal employer problem. And, and, and really, it's just that simple. The problem with trying to reach out to Trump voters right now, I think, I think it's folly. I think it, you know, it's a lost cause. Donald Trump has been so clear, so explicit, so outspoken that what he's about is just naked, raw racism. And if you say to white racists, oh, you know, well, we're going to do E-Verify, you know, which is going to somewhat diminish the population of people uh, with browner skin who are in this country without legal status, right? I don't think that's going to satisfy his people. You know, I really don't. I I think the people right now, we're down to the people supporting Donald Trump being unrepentant white racists, and white supremacists who believe that white people are, are superior, that white people should rule, that America was uh, founded as a white country, in quotes. Although, you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that is not the case. But nonetheless, that, that's, that's their shtick. And it, it, throwing them a relatively small bone, I don't think is going to mollify them at all, frankly. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the bad news. But it's also the good news in that 
You know, Trump's support is down into the 30s now. That's that's the percentage of white Americans who are still willing to be openly racist. Diane in Fort Lauderdale. Hey, Diane, what's up? I work for Broward County. You know, we've been working from our homes on our own uh, computer, internet, and telephone. They're not compensating us or anything. We have to do that on our own. So our own whole department is being run by our personal internet and our personal cell phone. That's besides the point. We had yesterday, yeah, yesterday we had a safe space kind of Zoom thing, you know, where everybody could come in and and talk about what's happening. And so I kind of expressed myself coming from uh, being a naturalized citizen from Jamaica. You know, I kind of gave my two cents how, how I see this, you know, and I started, you know, you know and, I, and I know, you know, African-American was, was kind of thrusted up on black people. But, we, you know, take away the African, you're all American, you know, and, and, and you're human and you're here. And so I was there expressing myself, you know, and I'm like, you know, they want to protect the buildings that don't breathe, we breathe. They want to protect the buildings that have insurance. We don't have insurance. And I was kind of going off that. So I saw, I had to go into the office today, and I saw one of my coworkers, this guy, white guy from Georgia. I've known him for 10 years. We work together. He's great. The first thing he says to me is, oh, 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 yeah, you know, that's so, why you know, I was like, well, how was I yesterday? I don't know if I didn't come off, you know, being a Caribbean black, it's just different from an American black. How did I, I hope I didn't step on any toes or hurt anybody's feelings. He's like, no, 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 but let me tell you, Colin Kaepernick got fired just because he wasn't good. I was like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, oh, yeah, geez. they didn't fire him because he's black. They fired him because he wasn't. And this is somebody I think I like. I think he likes me. Yeah. You know, we work yeah. together. And, I, I, yeah. and then he started with the Hillary and the Putin. The Hillary plutonium, and I saw this guy. I'm like, what? Hillary. He's Hillary. been watching right wing television, Fox News, or listening yeah. to right wing hate radio, Diane. Yes, but here's another thing, Tom, and I know I, I, I want to be quick. Why is it we're allowing Rand Paul to put this bill for chokeholds? Like, uh, in, 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 I know he has this bill coming up for uh, is it against chokeholds? I think in Kentucky because it's going to go down. It's against lynching. Yeah, but it's going to go down in history and the Republicans, you know, we're all against this, you know, and look, Rand Paul, I hope none of the Democrats should vote for it. None of them should vote for it. Why don't they come up with their own bill? Why are they making him hijack that? And I wanted to ask you... Well, it's the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill and Rand Paul has put a hold on it because he's Rand Paul. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a stunt, I think, in my opinion. But it's a stunt also to reach out to white people in Kentucky, which is what Rand Paul always does. Diane, thank you for the call. And thank you all for being with us today. Thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Gerilyn Halbert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Sposs, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney and Jabbermocky, the folks working on this program, thank you so much to all of you, and thank you to you for being with us. And you're it. Be good to each other. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.